Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. After securing qualification for the 2022 World Cup, the U.S. men's national team are trying to figure out what it's going to take to give them the best opportunity at the World Cup in November. In order to do that, there's two tune-up windows, the first one in June and the last one further on in the fall before we actually get to see the team line up in Qatar. In order to assess kind of how the World Cup qualifying went and what we can uh, expect in Qatar, I brought in a man who I think... He has an interesting perspective whenever it comes to the U.S. men's national team because he has a YouTube channel that's significantly bigger than this one, by the way, that covers the world game, that covers soccer. I mean, he just released a video on China. He released a video on Canada, and he covers the European soccer scene as well as anyone out there. He is Maxwell. Maxwell, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for accepting this uh, this call into the Yank Report. No, thank you for having me, man. Thank you. So the first thing I want to ask you is, I know that you've done some videos on the U.S. Men's National Team. I've, I've seen your passion. I've seen your fandom. But I want to know, like, kind of where are you at with the national team as far as, like, your soccer diet? Are, are you paying attention to, like, West McKinney's games at Juventus? Are you paying attention to uh, Christian Pulisic at Chelsea or even further down the list, like, Luca De La Torre at Heracles? Or, or are you just kind of watching the games, uh, the, the World Cup qualifying games? I... I like to just watch like the World Cup qualifying games. I follow the players to an extent. Like social media will just kind of flood my uh, my inbox with like you know Pulisic updates, Weston McKenney, all that kind of stuff. So I get like a little bit of that, but for the most part, all of my uh, U.S. soccer just comes from the qualifiers and just the friendlies and all that. And that's that's exactly why I want to talk to you. I'm really excited for this conversation because in this U.S. soccer world that I live in, uh, we tend to all be fanatics uh, about this this team and about these players, and we watch them wherever they play. But the rest of the country, the majority of American soccer fans, are more similar to you, uh, where they watch the top teams, they they watch the teams that they care about and the players that they're passionate about. Uh, they do watch the qualifiers and the big games that the U.S. is in, but they're not, you know watching Mallorca games with the hope that, you know, Matthew Hoppy can get in the last 10 minutes of the game, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about that. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you, though, is I know you released a video about uh, your thoughts on World Cup qualifying. It's been a few months since then. Uh, what are your thoughts about the U.S.'s performance throughout World Cup qualifying and, and sort of how far this team can go? So in terms of, like, how we performed in the qualifiers, we were pretty underwhelming. I knew that from the start it was going to be a struggle because this is a very young team and going through CONCACAF qualifiers completely different from the Gold Cup or just any any friendly in general. Um, but still, I just felt it was a, a lot more underwhelming. There's just a lot of inconsistency. And the more I thought about it over the months after that video, I, I kind of see this pattern in where the U.S. team is never the same or to an extent, the same squad every single match. And when you can only play three matches every month or so, even like there's a gap of maybe two months, right? It kind of messes up with the chemistry. And I think that's a problem that we've had, uh, especially because I feel like no other team does what Greg Berhalter would do in Panama, for example, right? We don't just completely switch up the team unless we truly have trust in them, unless these are players that, you know, we can trust 
to an extent when it comes to experience and all kinds of things like that. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be your number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including the latest odds on the NBA playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. And don't forget that the MLB is back as well. Who are you picking to win the World Series? Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join or use our promo code believe that's b-l-e-a-v to receive your 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts well, i want to know what kind of your expectations were coming into world cup qualifying what did you think that the group was going to do versus how did they actually do it was kind of hard to tell because there was the gold cup where things were a little tacky here or there same thing with the gold cup we didn't really even play like the full strength squad it still gave me a little bit of false hope because i was thinking okay well if we can win with our z team Surely we can do pretty well in the qualifiers, but it really just wasn't the case. It just wasn't realistic. You know, the Gold Cup, as I said before, it's com- it, like comparing that to CONCACAF qualifiers, completely different there. Um, so in terms of my expectations, they just dropped pretty much after that first match against El Salvador. Um, they dropped even more once the uh, Honduras match happened. Even if we did for, uh, win 4-1, we were still, I think, probably one of the worst halves I'd ever seen in a while, uh, was that first half against Honduras. You can still see this team improving over the last couple of windows, and that's what we like to see, but it's just, you see a little bit of improvement here or there, and then you just see all of a sudden this giant divot. Like we had Mexico versus the US. I feel like a lot of that tension just came from the patriotism and just the rivalry in general that really boosted us, boosted us up to winning that match. And then you go to Jamaica, where we were so bad, there was no identity whatsoever. And that's another problem. We've gone through the last few years with Greg Berhalter, and I still can't really define his identity besides just bump the ball up to the wings where there's no one in the middle to cross to in the first place. Like, another thing is, right, we don't have a proper number nine. We thought we did with Ricardo Pepe, but, you know, I feel like that's still going to take some time. He's 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you articulated a lot of sort of my reflections on World Cup qualifying. And yeah, after Nations League and Gold Cup and the successes there, we were really hoping to build on that and come out strong. And that first game against El Salvador uh, really slapped us in the face. But looking at the totality of World Cup qualifying um, and, and sort of how we got here from there, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as um, as far as not having the same unit throughout World Cup qualifying and more specifically, missing some significant pieces throughout World Cup qualifying. If you look at how many games actually Weston McKinney played in, uh, West, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was around eight games, uh, which is roughly, I don't know, 60% of the games uh, of World Cup qualifying. So for 40% of the games, we were missing Weston McKinney, who I think whenever he played was a key player. We got, I believe, um, I believe we got one start out of Gio Reyna uh, with a few substitute appearances. And whenever you look at the impact that player could have had throughout World Cup qualifying, uh, just an absolute tremendous loss. Uh, Christian Pulisic, a lot of his minutes were substitute minutes. Uh, he did have some starts, but we didn't really see the Christian Pulisic we wanted to see until very late in World Cup qualifying. And then there's, you know, the rotation at center back. We lost uh, goalkeepers throughout World Cup qualifying. Uh, Serginho Dest was kind of there and not there. Uh, then, then there's players, the teenagers that kind of came into the group uh, that took some time. Ricardo Pepe is a great example of one who kind of hit the scene hot and then kind of cooled off, which is something you'd expect from an 18-year-old, but it's also an 
16-year-old that we relied on tremendously. Same could be said for kind of uh, Yunus Musa. It took Musa a few games to kind of get into the swing. I thought that he was an absolute asset throughout World Cup qualifying, but we kind of got lucky with that one because that's not going to be the norm whenever you play a lot of young players. And then you look at the totality of this team, how young this team is, and sort of the, some of the structural issues that the team has where, like you said, there is no number nine for this team. And then you kind of look at what the results say or what the results were, which is that the U.S. had was, I think that the U.S. was number one in uh, expected goals throughout World Cup qualifying, uh, but they were down a, a few of those expected goals and those ex- missing a few of those expected goals will play out in some of these um, very tight windows where we're either tying by one goal or losing by one goal and missing a lot of chances. And and that lack of a, a goal score in a number nine really shows through. And, and these are all issues that I think are structural within the team uh, that there's just nothing anybody can do about. There's nothing that anybody can do to make our players older uh, and more experienced. And and there's nothing that anybody can do to make Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Eunice Musa play more games together. There's nothing we can do to get Gio Reyna on the field. Uh, and there's nothing we can do to have some type of uh, Champions League level number nine. There's We can't just do that. However, uh, there has been a ton of criticism of the coach, Greg Berhalter. I know in your video, you, you, had, you had some pretty scathing remarks on Greg. Uh, what were your thoughts on Greg throughout World Cup qualifying and, and, and kind of what he brought to the team? It was just the same old I've seen time and time again. You just never saw any distinct improvements, as I said before, across multiple windows that I felt like I had a little bit of confidence I could see after you know the Gold Cup and stuff because even then you can get used to contact qualifiers a little bit kind of get a gist of how they work out and build upon that i just never really saw that from greg Berhalter, and that's just why i was so frustrated with him and of course the other outside things where it's just the arrogance of just the u.s soccer federation in general just really comes out where you know greg Berhalter took selfies with fans at the uh, honduras match like do that after the match man like I'm sure they can stay there for another 10 minutes because I think it was 80 minutes played, right? Just do that after the match because doing that during the match, it's just arrogance. It's just no respect for your opponent whatsoever. It's just stuff like that that I feel like also adds to the constant issues with this team over the many years, in all honesty. Just that arrogance. It still lingers even though we didn't even qualify four plus years ago. So how much of that kind of the off the field stuff with Greg Berhalter contributes to the uh the your your dislike of the coach? I, I know pl- people point to um uh let's see, there's the the insistence on keeping guys like Jackson Yule and Sebastian Legette around uh throughout like the Gold Cup, even though they kind of proven that they weren't um contributing to the team in a real way. Uh same can be said for someone like Christian Roldan and the interview that he gave where he called Christian Roldan a glue guy, and that frustrated a lot of fans. Uh there's the incident with uh Weston McKinney getting suspended in Nashville and kind of the, mm-hmm. the mystery that, that surrounded that. There's the selfie. There's the bounce passes. There's kind of just the way that he carries himself and the demeanor. Um, there's the um, the verticality statements. There's the uh, the um, the, the slideshows where he always talks about changing the way the world sees American soccer. I mean, there's so many of these little things that sort of stick in the craw for uh, American soccer fans. What, what are it, it, do these things contribute to uh, your dissatisfaction with the product that you see from him on the field? I think it just depends on 
the magnitude of the situation like the selfies yeah that kind of pissed me off would i contribute that to is like you know tactics probably not um but say something like the statements he made after the Canada match where we dominated right i how many shots we have in that match like not many <laughs> because i mean cad just just stood stood back and defended and we just held the ball for pretty much the entire time but we didn't do anything with it so you know those kind of comments really just make me lose hope you know it, it's not the selfie stuff that makes me lose hope it's those kind of comments like that uh the christian world don stuff just the fact that he plays his favorites even though they don't do anything now, I, I, speaking of Canada, you just did a, a video on the rise of Canada. Great mm -hmm. video. Uh, I checked that one out. Can you kind of compare and contrast the Canadian team at present that was able to, to uh, uh, have great results against the U.S. and Mexico throughout World Cup qualifying, finished first in World Cup qualifying, uh, versus the U.S., which uh, finished third in World Cup qualifying despite having this wonderful group of talent? What, what are the differences between this Canadian national team and this American national team right now? I think one is the lack of leadership in the U.S. team. You know, I feel like you have Atiba Hutchinson always in the center or someone of that stature for Canada, right? Because a leader is so important. I mean, to throw this back to the Arsenal matches I just watched like the last two weeks, there was no leader on the pitch. We've been terrible because of it. And I think that's another problem with the U.S. team, which is they're so young as a core. I don't think there's really any particular leader at the moment you know i i feel like christian pulisic is the captain but can you really consider him a leader type captain you know yeah it, there's guys like walker zimmerman and uh tyler adams who are often pointed to as the leaders of the team but compare that to a guy like atiba hutchinson who uh he leads the canadian national team in caps i mean he's been the guy for canada for so long he's got all the skins on the wall he's played in europe for a number of years i mean whenever he lock, walks into the locker room his presence is felt and uh there's nobody questioning his authority over that group and you compare that to the u.s national team there's just nobody like that there's just i mean it would take like a landon donovan type of figure to be in the mix uh to to kind of compare to what atiba hutchinson's can um done for canada and there's just nobody in that group so how does the u.s kind of how do we i i don't know and then another thing is just i feel like there's a, a larger brotherhood like a closer brotherhood for the canadian team than there is the u.s it, it just feels that way and john herdman it seems like every single match they win he just isn't satisfied enough he wants more and you compare his interviews to greg berhalter's there's such a massive difference um but as, as you were saying sorry yeah yeah I I mean, I'm glad you brought up John Herdman because there's rumors now connecting John Herdman to bigger and bigger jobs across world soccer. He's kind of become a, a superstar. Just uh, quickly in your research for uh, the Canadian national team, what were your thoughts on John Herdman and what makes him so special? He's just, I think alongside being a tactician, a really good tactician, knows when to change it up, knows how to do things differently to adapt to the game. He's also really good as a mental coach. He knows the game in in and out when it comes to just the mentality you want to have um, playing this sport, and that was very much proven when he took over the women's team. They were broken. They had just came back from losing every single match in the 2011 World Cup. I'm pretty sure, and he took that team and brought them to two bronze medals um, and a quarterfinal finish 
in um, the 2015 World Cup. And he brought all that onto the men's team, where his first goal was to break the, uh, I guess, the goal scored record against the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. And everyone, or like not everyone, but some of the people in that squad didn't really feel right about that. They, they just felt like it wasn't possible. Um, but John Herman stuck to his, uh, his guns there. And I think just having that bullish attitude towards the game, being able to motivate your players properly, and always being hungry is what will get you above pretty much most of the international uh, coaches we have here. Yeah, it's hard not to be impressed by John Herdman whenever you hear him speak and you see the way that his players speak about him, not to mention the results that he's gotten where he's kind of come into this uh, World Cup qualifying, this, this World Cup qualifying cycle, which was supposed to be the coming out party for this new generation of American superstars, and just kind of crashed the party. Uh, slapped Mexico around down in Mexico, beat up the, on the U.S. in Nashville, and then beat both of them up in Canada. I mean, yeah. just a, a remarkable job. Now, I, I don't want to stay too much on Canada, but Canada has a really tough draw in the World Cup. Uh, I think they, they have Belgium and they have Croatia. Do you think they have a chance of getting out of their group? I, I honestly think so, um, because, I mean, John Herdman, as I said, exceptional coach, knows what to do with these types of situations. It's going to be difficult, because, I mean, it is Belgium and Croatia. But I will say about uh, Belgium, and I'm going to stick to my guns here for the rest of the, uh, the year here. I don't think Belgium are going to do well in this World Cup. It's just, in general, a very old core. And when you're playing, like, 96-year-old Toby Alderweireld and all those defenders, I just... I don't see much hope for that team. I feel like they're going to be the ones that crash out. Like they're one of the favorites to crash out. I think the golden generation's dead. So <laughs> I just, I just think from that, I think Canada has a pretty good uh, chance there. It, it will be it's difficult it. though, because you know there's Croatia still. Morocco's a pretty good team too. People kind of forget about Morocco. Hakimi um, and Nasiri, although he's not really in great form right now. But anything can change in the World Cup. Yeah, and. I mean, to your point, there's been a lot of cases of uh, formerly great national teams that are getting a little bit up there in age, relying on players that are a bit too old uh, and crashing and burning. I mean, it happened to Spain. It happened to Germany. Uh, it's, it's happened to a lot. Uh, Portugal, whenever the U.S. beat them, I think in 2002, I think was along those lines. Uh, so it's, it's very possible, and that would be a great story. Now, you bring up Morocco which is a tremendous segue oh, yeah, because that's right. the U.S. is going to be <laughs> taking on Morocco in this June uh, window where it's going to be two friendlies, one against Morocco, one against Uruguay, and then one against uh, the Nations League against Grenada and El Salvador. Uh, so this is going to be an opportunity for Greg to, uh, he called it a fine-tuning uh, window, one where he can get more playing time with some of the core guys, but also an opportunity to see a couple of new players. We know that Cameron Carter Vickers from Celtics is going to be coming in. We know that Haji Wright, uh, who's tearing it up in the Turkish league is going to be coming in. Um, and those are the players that we know are going to be coming in. We know that John Brooks is likely not to be a part of this group. We know that Ricardo Pepe's likely not to be a part of this group, but there's also a mystery dual international that's going to be coming in. Uh, and outside of that, we don't really know. We, we, we're hoping that some other players come in, uh, but we don't really know. What, what are kind of your hopes and, and expectations from this particular June window that's going to help the U.S. Uh, in November? I just want to see, in general, some team building. I think that's just really what you can do in these types of situations. Take advantage of these friendlies. 
use different players that you may have not used before, like what we could have done in earlier friendlies before the uh, World Cup qualifiers, we could avoid situations like Panama. I feel like these are matches that we can experiment a lot more and just see what these new players can provide us. You know, what uh, if we can put them in the system or even maybe build the system around them a little bit, you know? Um, the one thing that I'm a little curious, though, is there's usually friendlies also before the World Cup. And that's where you can kind of um, get the squad together and really know what the game plan is um, before everything. I have no idea if that's going to happen this World Cup because it's all the way in the winter. There's going to be clubs playing prior. Um, so that, that'll be uh, really interesting to see what happens there. If there are friendlies before them, that's, that's when I think we should probably play like our main squad. A little bit of experimentation here and there, but for the most part, focus on the experimentation in this window. Well, I can answer that question. There's not going to be friendlies before the World Cup, but yeah, you're right. There's usually like a little send-off tournament, uh, and, and that's not just for the U.S., but that's for clubs all around the world. But in this particular case, since the World Cup's going to be in the middle of the European season, uh, I think I think there's going to be like a two-week pause uh, before, and then that's whenever teams are going to go off to the World Cup. But there's not expected to be any friendlies or anything like that taking place. So for the U.S., it's this June window. And then we have another window in the fall. Uh, and that's it. That's all we got before the World Cup. So this is our second to last opportunity uh, to get it right, to, to, to figure things out before the World Cup. Uh, with all that being said, uh, one of the players that I'm really excited about uh, coming into this window is Jesus Ferreira. I think he, he's the leading goal scorer in MLS right now. He had an okay uh, World Cup qualifying cycle. I'm just curious about your thoughts on Jesus Ferreira and, and your thoughts on uh, just MLS in general as a league that can contribute players to uh, the U.S. men's national team. I, I know you've hyped up uh, Jesus Ferreira a lot. I've seen that on Twitter quite a bit. Um, I, I like him as a player. I think his positioning is great uh, from what I've seen. I think in the matches he played, he played a little too deep because every single time he crossed in the ball, he always was a little bit too behind. And of course, he should probably work on his finishing a little bit um, in those qualifiers. Again, just there were some chances that should have gone in and it just didn't. Yeah. But there was one against El Salvador and there yeah. was one against Panama that come to mind as, as missed opportunities mm -hmm. for Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, I think he should definitely get a, another chance at it. He's done really well in the MLS. Uh, MLS, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, your question about the MLS, right? Like, uh, what was it again? Yeah, so what do you think about MLS as a league, really, in general, as it compares to Europe? How do you think that, uh, do you think that MLS players are of quality to be playing for the national team? Just kind of your thoughts on that whole discussion. I think so, in, in some regards. I feel like the game in MLS is improving year after year. It's starting to kind of tear away from that retirement um, title that we've had for however many years. There's still obviously those players, but you're starting to see a lot more emphasis on youth, which which yeah. Which is big what news like today to is that uh, Lionel Messi might be heading to MLS at the end of the 2023 season, so that's something. But anyway, go Messi, on. Messi saying he's going to Miami. He's lying. He's lying. I got contacts. He's going to Charlotte. He's going to Charlotte. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm really excited for the MLS just because I don't really watch it too much. I don't follow it too much. I just follow like Charlotte FC because they are my local team now. But I do like how there's an emphasis on youth. There's a lot more just coming out. Um, and it's exciting. When, it, when a league has all this youth talent that is kind of taking over the scene, it's really exciting for both 
the U.S. soccer fans who are seeing the future of the game, not only just for one single generation, but for more, uh, but for more um, potentially, but also just in general for more of the new fans coming in. You know, they're seeing some players that they'll see grow into the game, grow into the league, and potentially become stars overseas. Um, I think that's the one thing the U.S. Soccer Federation has always been lagging behind with is the MLS. It's just always been not really focusing on youth. It's always been focusing more on image, you know, like we've been a retirement league for so many years. But now it's kind of, as I said before, it's it's going away and we're starting to see more youth. In the U.S. soccer world, the discussion is all is fairly black and white. Generally, it's like MLS is either the worst thing ever or it's great. I, I think it's somewhere in between. Like you said, I think uh, whether or not a player is good enough for the national team that's coming out of MLS, I think it's a case by case basis. I think some are going to be good enough and some aren't. And I think a lot of that has to do with the depth at that particular position. I mean, there's guys like uh, Jordi Mihailovic who is having a MVP caliber season uh, over in Montreal for MLS, but he's playing in a position at winger or uh, where he would potentially play at winger for uh, the national team. That's a position of strength for the national team. And there's not really a spot for him. Whereas it's striker. Uh, that's a position without a lot of depth where nobody's really stepped up. So a guy like Jesus Ferreira, potentially a guy like Brandon Vasquez could potentially step into that spot. Those same could be said for Haji Wright or Ricardo Pepe or whoever else is out there. Uh, I look at a position like a uh, backup left back is kind of the same situation. Uh, anybody who steps up and claims that spot could be good. I don't think that every MLS player is great. I don't think that every MLS player is bad. I, I, I think it should be um, a, a lot more of a case-by-case basis. But I'm mm-hmm. curious for you, who's uh, obviously a soccer fanatic, what's it been like having actual professional soccer close by in Charlotte where you can actually uh, go to the games and, and, and enjoy a team that's in your backyard. It's, it's pretty sick. I, I can't lie. Although my wallet gets bled dry because the, there's like, it, it's a complete car culture in Charlotte. I have to drive like 30 miles down uh, to see the game and then park for like $40. Uh, but I, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. I finally got to be in the depths of the actual supporter section uh, last weekend. That was a ton of fun, just sing a bunch of chants, all that kind of stuff. Um, but just in general, like the the culture here in Charlotte when it comes to soccer has just been phenomenal. Like I, I didn't expect anything like this before. Uh, prior to Charlotte FC becoming a thing, everyone was banking on Raleigh to be um, the soccer city in North Carolina because it was closer to the so-called triangle where it's like UNC. Duke, uh, NC State, really good soccer programs there. Um, And also the Charlotte scene just didn't really seem that passionate. At one point, there was like a rally in 2017 uh, called MLS to CLT. It only had 20 people. It was a laughing stock for the rest of the Twitter night. Um, But for some reason, all all that's changed, um, which I'm really grateful for. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to drive two hours. Uh, to see a local team, I can just drive 30 miles, but you know, um, it's been fun. I've never had this experience before and just seeing the game grow before my own eyes. It's really beautiful because I I would have never expected this when I was like 10 years old. Yeah. Access to soccer is so damn cool. I mean, I, I grew up in a world where MLS didn't exist and, and I got to see it actually start and actually grow. And, and just to, have so many people now have such access to the game in their own towns and their own communities is so cool. One of the fascinating things for me in starting this YouTube channel is like 
you know, I, I'm from Louisiana. Louisiana is certainly not a uh, a soccer crazy state, and I always assumed that there just weren't a lot of people out there that knew much about the national team or cared or anything like that. And it's been remarkable to me, like in growing the channel, seeing people comment like, "Hey, I'm from Louisiana. Hey, I'm people <laughs> that live in my hometown that that know like my small hometown of like 200,000 people actually like watch the channel." And it's, it's just been crazy to find out that there are so many of us out there, even though it feels like there's not a lot, even though like in high school, I didn't really get to talk about this stuff with anybody. There's, there's a lot of people out there that care about this stuff. And it's so cool to see uh, the living, breathing embodiment of that. Whenever you see like the, the opening game for Charlotte, or you see the Nashville opening their new stadium and just the amount of support that they have there and, and, you know, games in Austin and stuff like that. And I, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go to many uh, U.S. men's national team games, but just seeing the amount of support, uh, seeing how much the fans know about the game and know about the players and how passionate they are, it's just it's just an awesome experience all the way around. Yeah, I, I think just the coolest thing is, like, I think your generation saw the beginning of it. Mine kind of jumped into it during, like, World Cup 2010 and so on. There was always a wall, though, uh, I feel like there was just never enough broadcasting of games, even like European games over here for mm -hmm. the longest of time. And, and now it just seems like everything is that, I mean, it's available. It's all available. It's very easy to reach, uh, whether legally or illegally. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just, I'm so happy for the next generation who just get to experience this. They won't feel lost. They won't feel like there's an area where you can't, um, celebrate this sport you know you can yeah experience that, that's true that's true for fans and for players as well players mm -hmm. that are coming up in, in this game in this country have opportunities i mean they may not have as many opportunities as if they were born in like rio or madrid or something like that but the, kind of depending on where you are in this country the web is growing it mm -hmm. used to be you know when i was coming up if you didn't if you weren't from like uh uh Southern California, New York, New Jersey, uh, Florida, and Texas were like the hot spots for soccer. I mean, good luck getting to the highest levels. But now there's kids coming from all over the place uh, that are get, getting access, getting opportunities. You know, the famous story with Clint Dempsey. Clint Dempsey was just inducted into, I think, the uh, Seattle Sounders Hall of Fame. He would have to drive six hours from Nacogdoches, Texas, to Dallas multiple times a week to, to play to get the best coaching and to, and to get access to uh, the quality of, of, of soccer that he needed in order to grow as a professional. And you saw that, how that turned out for him. Well, today there might be some people out there who have to drive six hours, but the amount of people is, is, is closing tremendously. There's, there's access to quality coaches, professional coaches. It's just growing. And like you said, I'm really excited for this next generation. Uh, this just generation that's getting started right now, this generation that's coming up, seeing players, like Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, uh, Tyler Adams at the highest levels, seeing players like Ricardo Pepe start off in Dallas and then get massive moves over to Europe, and then being able to go to their local uh, MLS clubs and seeing passionate fan bases, packed houses, people who really care about the sport. It's remarkable. 
We got to move on. We've been talking about MLS for too long. I want to talk about the World Cup. It's the thing that everybody cares about. It's the thing that we're all circling. It's the thing that we've been waiting for for eight years uh, since that dreadful night in Cuba, which if you don't know much about that story, uh, Maxwell did a tremendous job uh, kind of recap, recounting that whole World Cup qualifying cycle and every little uh, painful detail of it. Uh, but the U.S. is going to, uh, they, they have qualified for the World Cup in Qatar. Now what? Now what? Now how are they going to actually do in Qatar? What are kind of your thoughts on, on the squad and, and what expectations we can have for this group in Qatar? I I don't particularly have much hope for us uh, <laughs> in, in this World Cup. I think I, I've been kind of on this for a bit. I feel like we might actually have a decent chance against England. I know people will think I'm crazy there, but I only believe that because it's going to be such a patriotic match. I mean, one, it's Black Friday. No one's doing anything. Everyone is going to be watching that match. And I mean, it's just England versus the U.S., We've been facing each other since 1776 and beyond. So something tells me just all of that can actually bump this team to maybe a draw, maybe a win. If we win, if we win, that'll be the greatest day of my life. Um, outside of that, though, <laughs> I don't know if I can really see anything else. I have a feeling that Ukraine's probably going to be that last spot. Um, and Iran, I would not sleep on Iran, man. Very good team. Um, there's not, there's some star players like uh, Mehdi Taremi. Sardar Asmund is really good for the national team. Not so much club team, but he hasn't really gotten too many chances for Leverkusen, so we'll, we'll just have to see there. Um, but just in general, it's a really good core of young and old players. Very solid keeper. I think we have a chance there, but I feel like Iran would get, a, get the better of us there. And then Ukraine... I feel like just seeing their war-torn country is enough to really have a fire in their heart to go and go pretty far in the World Cup, in all honesty. So, honestly, I, I don't see us getting out of the group stages. I hope. I really do hope. But I, I just don't see it. Yeah, I, I can't fault you for that, uh, for that thought, man. I mean, looking at this, at this team that we have and just how young they are and how inconsistent they've been, um, it, it's hard to really assume that they're going to be anything other than inconsistent when, once they get to the World Cup. And, and coming up against these teams, uh, like you said, I mean, everybody's pointing to this England game as sort of um, as one that the U.S. can go out and get based on just, just – American exceptionalism, where we always <laughs> feel like no matter what we're doing, we have a chance against in England. Yeah, and England somehow, <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason, we got England's number across the board and whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, but yeah, this, this Iran game is, is one that I think everybody has circled as something that's very scary. I've had... I've seen so many articles and, and videos and everything made about, like, are we sleeping on Iran? Like, we can't be at this point. Like, everybody is... Yeah. As, <laughs> knows about like their striker and just how the um the what they can bring to the table and, and yeah this this last team which could be uh, i think scotland or, or ukraine it's 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 going to be a tough group and and it's it's one of those things where i've studied a lot of the past uh world cups for the u.s and i mean that group stage it's three games and anything can happen in three games you mm -hmm. know like the U.S. beat Spain once. You know, the U.S. beat the invincible Spain. There was one game where the U.S. 
was, uh, if you uh, look at the quotes from the Spanish players, just as good as Spain on the day. And that can happen in sports, and we see that in sports every weekend. Somebody does something that you're not expecting them to do. And that could be the U.S. against England, or it could be Iran against the U.S. Like We, we don't know how that's all going to shake out. So it, it could be a f- phenomenal World Cup for the U.S. It could be an absolute miserable World Cup for the U.S. I really have no idea how it's going to shake out, but I, I absolutely can't wait to see it all play out. Yeah, I mean, going back to like just the history, um, I feel like there's always been a theme to the U.S. in every single World Cup. 2010, we were like the comeback kids. 2014, we were just the underdogs with a chip on our shoulder because we faced Ghana in our first match and we beat them. And and then, of course, we had Portugal and Germany. Portugal were pretty underwhelming, I will say, but still a two-all draw. That's pretty impressive, even against Portugal. Um, with 2022... And come from behind. They had to... Yeah. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo had to put the squad <laughs> on his back. No, that was that... Oh, my God. That, that dagger in the heart when Varela... I think that was... Was that Varela or was that... Ronaldo, I can't remember. Ronaldo hit the cross. Yeah, I don't know who, uh, who headed it in, but I remember Michael Bradley trying to run out and cover mm-hmm. Cristiano Ronaldo in like the 90th minute, and that just it wasn't happening. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be fun to see what this new U.S. team is going to be. I hope it isn't just someone that or some team that's just going to let everyone step on them, and I'm sure it's not going to be the case. I mean, it's their first World Cup in over eight years. So I'm I'm really excited for that. I'm just excited for the explosion of fans in this next winter. It's weird even saying that because right around this time, you'd expect the World Cup to be at its peak hype. Um, yeah, it's like May. Like, it, it'd be like next month. So yeah. it's it's going to be really fun. I, I can't wait. In terms of watching the team, I'm a little shaky there, but everything else I, I am looking so forward to. Yeah, I absolutely cannot wait. And, and then if you really want to look ahead whenever you think about this 2026 World Cup and you think about, you know, most of our best players right now in Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, these guys are going to be entering their prime. You look at guys like, uh, or or maybe at their prime at that point, you look at someone like Giovanni Reyna, who's going to be, uh, what, like 23 years old. And I mean, just you, you add four years to a lot of these players who are around 20 years old. And then think about the, the quality that the U.S. is uh, producing right now. And, and you add that to the mix. I mean, it, it could be it, it could be quite exciting four years from now in 2026. And that's that's kind of what we have to look forward to. So yeah. uh I, I draw a lot of similarities between this 2022 World Cup cycle and the 1990 World Cup cycle, where uh, 1990 was um, the first time in a long time that the U.S. actually qualified for the World Cup. Uh, and the reason why we qualified is because U.S. soccer won the bid to host the 1994 World Cup. So U.S. soccer put a lot of resources in getting a team together, making sure they were good, uh, to look ahead to 1994 so they could have a good showing. And, and they ended up putting together a team, ended up caring more than they did in previous decades, and actually making the 1990 World Cup. But the, I believe they went three and out in 1990. They had a bunch of very young players, young, inexperienced players. The majority of the players were like college players at that point, uh, didn't have a lot of professional experience, but they were able to take what they learned in that World Cup, build a, a unit of players, uh, add four years to them, and then whenever it came time for the 1994 World Cup in the U.S., they went out and shocked the world uh, and played a lot better than anybody expected them to. Um, I, I'm wondering if we're going to see something similar uh, in 2022 where this young core of U.S. Men's National Team players uh, kind of gains that experience that they need to take to 2026 
in order to like really show the world what we could do. But I am hoping that uh, we do a little bit better than we did in 1990. We get out of the group and, and we kind of we kind of shock some some shock the world right now. I, I like that comparison, though. I, I can definitely see like glimmers of 1994 in that 2026 World Cup. No, it's it's going to yeah. be exciting. I, I think just the entire generation, just the direction the sport is going in general, there feels like there's a much distincter direction. The game is growing more and more. It's going to have an explosion once the World Cup happens. More people are going to find themselves watching the MLS, watching multiple different leagues outside of that. Um, just in general, it's it's an exciting time. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, I hope that, that I hope it does happen. I hope it is a catalyst for for more people coming into this game um, and, and and the the continued growth of this sport. I know that we need it right now. If you're paying attention to the uh, to the MLS TV deal and everything that's going on there, but that's kind of a discussion for another day. Maxwell, I want to wrap it up. I think I've taken up enough of your time. Can you take a minute to kind of tell everybody about your channel and what you're doing over there and uh, what your plans are for uh, 2022? Yeah, um, I, I'm Maxwell. Uh, I'm a YouTuber that just talks about football as basically like a little expert fan, really. I'm, I'm no tactician or anything like that. If I see tactics, it takes like five minutes for me to actually like understand them. <laughs> but I create video essays just talking about the histories of national teams. I've talked about PSG's failures in the Champions League over the past few decades. I just have a lot of uh, different projects I'd like to talk about. I just love talking about the emotional parts of this sport. I feel like that just is the biggest thing to me, that and just identity in general. And just in terms of 2022, I just hope I can create more of these types of videos, just learn more about the game that I may have missed out on quite a bit when I was making FIFA content. And yeah. Yeah. And just out of my curiosity, I know you have a massive channel. You have 90,000 subscribers. You're coming to, uh, you're running towards 100,000. You're going to get that, uh, that YouTube thing whatever that is <laughs> the, the that plaque, plaque yeah. the plaque for a hundred thousand uh and you get significant views on all your videos what what's the breakdown for your uh audience is it is it mostly american is it mostly european is it kind of mixed it's, it's mixed i'd say it's mostly american though um some canadian a good amount uk i think my fourth most demographic is india but uh, yeah, that's just awesome, in general, man. it's like worldwide. So it's it's really cool. I'm always fascinated with just like how many American soccer fans there are. Like whenever I see like arguments go on on the internet and like you assume that the person talking is like British or something like that. And you mm -hmm. find out that they're just from Columbus, but they're using words like shite and arse for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. uh, they, that's, that's just a part of being a soccer fan in America. Anyway, I digress. Maxwell, can you tell everybody what your uh, Twitter account is so they can follow you? Oh yeah, so it's uh, it's Maxwell M A Q W E L L L the extra L because the other name was taken. So yeah, just follow me on Twitter. And just add an L to your name. All right, <laughs> tactical manager. Anyway, guys, for Maxwell, my name is Sam, and this is the Anchor Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.